Good morning, everyone. Thank you, worship team. Well, welcome to the last day of February. That was going to sound a whole lot different until I told my wife this morning, happy first day of March. All right, so we will begin March tomorrow. And besides the upcoming Daylight Savings Time, um, March we see the beginning of our Easter celebrations. March 28th is Palm Sunday. And I was thinking, you know, what a great book to be in. Isaiah, as we go through um, Palm Sunday and as we go through Easter, Isaiah is what we did last year when we were broadcasting these events. Isaiah is what we use to discuss the, the four passages they have on the suffering servant, um, which I, I think is pretty remarkable because even this morning, I know Angel and I were watching a, a, a broadcast on Isaiah, and, and they were talking about they find it really strange that Isaiah could prophesy and know 200 years in advance. It's like, that shouldn't seem so difficult. I mean, here the man talked about Jesus coming that was going to be like 800 years in advance. And then he prophesies what we're going to see some today, a time that we don't even know when it's going to be. You know, we're talking about the day of the Lord. So I don't see 200, 200 year prophecy for Isaiah seems like jump change. So like I said, we got to broad, we did broadcast these messages last year. This year we're celebrating in person. And one thing to keep in mind is this world is changing. I think it's just sped up a little bit more than what the rate we were going. And it is moving towards the times that we're reading about, and especially these past weeks in Isaiah. And today we're going to look at chapters 17 and 18. And we're going to look at a snapshot at the destruction and the preservation, or basically the work of man versus the work of God. So let me read it to you. It says, An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aror are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the reaper gathers the standing grain and his arm harvests the ears and when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. I'm sorry, Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars 
the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, the strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day you plant them and you make them blossom in the mornings that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and the whirring dust before the storm. At evening time, behold terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. 18. Ah, the land of the whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the water. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on earth, when a signal is raised on the mountain, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus says the Lord to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey on the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to the Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time where we can be in your word and going through this. We thank you that you spoke through Isaiah and gave this to us as a, a promise and a hope. We thank you that we see you working, Jesus, even back here in this time. And we see that you will come in that day. We will hear the, the, the trumpet blow. We will see the signal. We thank you so much for that. Just quiet our hearts, open our minds, and help us to hear what you have for us today. Amen. Now, these oracles concerning Damascus and Cush, they have five pieces to them. The first one, 
the first piece is an alliance that failed in verses 1 through 3, an alliance that failed. The second, we see three in that day sections in verses 4 through 9. We see, so in that day, Jacob will re reduce to gleanings in 4 through 6. In 7 and 8, it says a remnant will remain. And then in 9, we see their day of preservation will also be their day of destruction to all the worldly powers. The third piece in this oracle is verses 10 through 11, and it's an explanation of why this disaster has come. The fourth one in 12 through 14 shows us an international threat. And then the fifth and the final one, chapter 18 goes over God watching the world scheme. So the first one, alliance have failed. So here the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, you, we will also call it, you'll hear Jacob, you'll hear Israel, you'll hear Ephraim. It's all the same, the northern ten tribes. And they're making their first appearance in this section that we're going over from chapters 13 to 27, this triumph of a kingdom. And, and the northern kingdom, remember, they are linked in alliance with Aram. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 7. They're linked with them, and they will be destroyed with them. Um, the northern kingdom has overlooked God during this and his requirements, and they've chased after their own desires. So God is saying, you know what? It may seem like it, but your sin is not overlooked. And God's concern for his people is a holy concern. It's a holy concern. He will not be mocked, and he will bring judgment. And so in this immediate judgment, God's using the Assyrian army to come and bring an end to this alliance. Um, Jacob has sought an earthly alliance for protection, and he has forgot, he has forgotten who the real protector is. So therefore, God is going to come and remove their power and their security. Damascus will be no more. And in a familiar phrase we've seen over and over now is a picture of this livestock living in this desolated land. And they're living in peace. And they have a beautiful view. And they are not afraid of anything. So verse 3, we continue with this pending destruction of Damascus, when God's people search to others besides God for peace and protection. And this is what's going to happen. So basically, the message we are to see from this destruction and ruin that comes from God's people, they took their eyes off him, and therefore their children grew up not ever really knowing about him. And that always shocked me because when you... I never really paid attention, so you start going through the Old Testament, going through First um, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and realizing that they went hundreds of years without even celebrating Passover because they were so corrupt, and they took their eyes off him. So that's why our message, one of our messages today, is we can never stop learning about him, trusting in him. Um, 
And instead, like them, it's so easy to get our minds off that and to fall in line with the world and mimic them and do what's, do what's popular. And easily we can forget that we're only on here, we're chosen. We have a mission in this world and we need others to know about God and, and teach them that he is their sole protector and to look to him daily for our strength. And the key to that is it starts at home. Now in verses... In verses 6 and 7, we see a remnant of Jacob that will be saved in that day. So in that day, here we go, verses 4 through 9. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers the standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and when the glean, one gleans the ear of grain in the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries, and the top of the highest bough, four or five, on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel, he will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and hilltops, which they deserted because the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. We see three in that day sections in verses 4, 7, and 9. Um, verse 4, Jacob's glory is a false glory of world power and status. But in that day, the day of the Lord, they will fade like a wasting disease. They will become poor, lowly, and weak. Now, the initial one to this is the Syrian attack. And when Assyria came, they would surround the city and cut everything off. And it could be years. In our day and age, we read this in the Bible, we think, okay, this was quickly done. It could be years where they would starve these people out. And that's where you get the picture of this wasting away. It's to make them weak so they want to come out. In our day and age, it'd be simple. You would simply cut off their supply of toilet paper and people would immediately give up and say, we give up. We need to get in line somewhere to get this stuff. The good news is, you can go to Costco now, and you can get five huge things at one time. You're no longer limited. I think that's either a sign of the pandemic weeping or the logistics chain catching up. But, um, so you can actually not give up for quite a while now. In verse 5, now we see the figure of a reaper this is an external force that comes into play. And it says the people there will be like standing corn, ready to be removed with the sickle. So we know this is coming. Um, in that day there will be judgment. Now we see a picture of this harvest. They're going to come, and we get the idea that when they harvest, nothing's going to remain. And, and we saw immediately this was true 
when Assyria came to the northern ten tribes. They conquered them. They packed everybody up and took them out. And then in that land, they brought a new series of captive people. So nothing would ever be the same again in that northern ten tribes. And the hearers of this song that Isaiah was singing would be very familiar with the valley of Rephaim. This was in the south of Jerusalem. It was a very fertile area, and the poor would always go there to go glean. Verse 6, some gleanings, some of the gleanings will remain. And this is a picture also of God's law, that a landowner, if, if you read about it in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, he was not allowed by God's law to have his harvesters go over a field twice. This allowed the poor to come in and gather the remnants they could find for their daily provision. And so in verse 6, we see there will be a surviving few against all odds in the final day of judgment, a, a remnant will come up to see God in Zion. Verse 7, the second in that day. This turns into a question of trust. Um, Isaiah is no doubt God's put on his heart to write about the world at this point. On that great day, man will look upon the Holy One of Israel. The word look here, what it means is a steady, fixed glaze um, on the Lord. He is the sole object being looked at, and he provides the sole reason of our confidence. In Psalms 123.2, Psalm 123.2 says, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. And we see people usually do this, right? When there's a horrible news happens, um, they get bad news about uh, their life or the relative's life, and they realize there's nothing more that really matters except God, right? Everything's just stripped away. And they realize, you know what? In the end, all there is is God. And, and they just focus on that. And, and that's... I think we'll get more to that later, but I think that's something we need to think about in our own lives now. So maker here is in sharp contrast to the handmade gods we see in verse 8. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. And then for Israel, the word maker even meant more than the fact that God was their creator of the world. Because um, the reason is, besides creation, then God made Israel. Um, he made the people uh, by election and covered them with, the, with this redemption and providential care. You think about it, Abraham or Abram was not a Jew. He was not God's people. He was called to be that. And by faithfulness, his faithfulness, there became a people. And knowing this, this should give us much, this should mean so much more to us. Because knowing God did this for Israel, 
And when he did this, he gave Abram a promise for us also. So we know that. We know that he chose us, Gentiles. Um, and not only did he chose us, but he made a way for us. He brought his son down to earth, who walked down this intentional path that finally led to the cross so that one day, one day, we could term him our maker and our redeemer also. Um, great psalms to think about if you want to reflect this week and think about that maker. Take a look at Psalm 104 and 105. 104 and 105. Good ones just to, to meditate on this next week. And in verse 8, we see all false religions are ultimately an exercise in self. It's made by their hands, and, and they have to provide everything for it. And we know all of this, as we see, is going to be completely wiped out. In verse 9, strong cities that have been built on their own self-reliance are of no use for protection, especially to a people who was brought under the rock, the mighty fortress. They've turned on it, and so now Jacob, the people who God had called, have left him and forgotten the wonderful, peaceful times they had in that area, like under Joshua, when he ruled. Um, and the Lord's protection was on them. They've abandoned, this shows us a picture of them abandoning those sites, and they have overgrowth, and they're grown over, to build these fortified cities so they can be protected, relying on themselves. But we see they do not hold up. So they traded a faith and obedience to God for man's idea of security, and it will come crashing down on them. The third in that day, in 1011, I mean, the third piece of this five-piece oracle in 1011 is an explanation of why this disaster has come. In, in verse 10, you can see Psalm 7811, 7811, talking to Ephraim, they have forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. Salvation here does not mean an occasional act, but salvation here means an attribute of God, that he's a saving God. So Israel could never say, oh, we're in a tight fix. Can God save us now? For he always did. He's a God who saves. Rock, in this term, links to salvation, and it does not just mean strength. An example we see is the care it provides, too. If you remember the story in Exodus, when God uses a rock to bring water to his people in the middle of the desert. So we know God is dependable. He's our Savior that provides fortress-like protection against our enemies. And it's heartbreaking to see Israel in this. Like much of the world today, I mean, they were wasting their time in this false religion, this political ranting and maneuvering, making alliances, instead of being obedient and seeking the security and relationship with God. Now in verse 11, the thing to get an idea here is 
The gods of Canaan were not personal beings that could be moved by pleas. So when they made this religion, what they had to do, if they wanted something, they had to, they had to do something and hope the gods would provide a corresponding, relatable act in it. So what we see is if they wanted things to grow, they would plant they would plant seedlings already and hope that the gods would respond to that and make it even bigger. And then the harvest will flee away. The harvest from this life, for many, will be different from what was sought, and it will end in helpless, incurable pain. The fourth piece, an international threat, verses 12 through 14. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like a thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountain before the wind, and the whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. For 12 through 14 and all of chapter 18, we see the threat to Jerusalem. And we find the security there that's found in the Lord and not the cities of fortresses that were built by man. We see in the three verses of 12 through 14 a reference to a time that's not specifically understood of when it takes place here. Um, so we know it's in the future. And we see Isaiah talking about a future that's even a future to us. It's the day of the Lord. Now verse 12, when you read it, it sounds a lot, a lot like what we saw in chapter 13, right? And in 13.4, we saw a great multitude gathered surrounding Jerusalem, very confident with it's an idea picture of almost like the, all the world soldiers that have surrounded Jerusalem, and they're going to take it out. But as we saw in chapter 13, God the rock turns his enemies' hands feeble and their hearts melt. So in verse 12, they have gathered, they're posturing for victory. We see the, these word pictures like the roar of the nations and the roaring of mighty waters. So we get the feeling that these hostile forces threatening God's people, we see that. And ultimately, God, God alone, is their protection. The word ah that we see here can also be translated into woe to. So we got some more of those woe verses. They have gathered, but God is saying, woe to you. Verse 13, we see the woe in action. And, and we see them roaring up, everything building up. But then they're chased away like chaff on the mountain. So how nerve-wracking for you if you're in Jerusalem at that time, the people that are in there, um, surrounded by incredible forces. And we hear the noise. The, the, God is telling us the noise will be deafening as they're surrounded 
by these enemy forces. And the enemy forces are expecting full annihilation of Jerusalem. And God instantly and powerfully ends the battle. So by this, we see this picture of being able to trust in God. And while the world's telling us, you know what, there is no God. This united world that we've built up has all the power in it. You Christians are crazy. It, it never comes to effect. And then the chaff in this verse, it's a, it's a picture of speed and total dispersion. If you've ever seen how light this stuff is in a wind, it just sails. So they're using that word picture to show what's going to happen to God's enemies, and it is a swift and divine punishment, and its victims are helpless. Verse 14. This is a great verse for this chapter. Great verse for this chapter. I love it. At evening time, behold terror. So the world's forces, they have surround Jerusalem. They're threatening an attack. And by morning, calm, peace. There's no enemy to be found. Have we seen this before? Has this happened before? Where there was a threat in the evening and by morning there was calm. Yes. And we get to go through this in a few more chapters. Um, now, Al went over with us in 1428. Just a small little footnote, but it told us that King Ahaz had passed away. And so now we're in Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah. And in chapter 36 and 37, feel free to read ahead. Hopefully you've read this more than once. We read of Assyria coming to threaten Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, unlike his father, didn't make alliance. Now, if you remember earlier when we read in Isaiah, Isaiah went to Ahaz in the upper pool and said, challenge God challenge he's willing to give you anything and they have said nope I, I don't want to tempt God well he had already made an alliance with Assyria so Hezekiah in the same situation it's not the same you know here we have Assyria surrounding Jerusalem going to starve him out and they're already taunting him the earliest form known of trash talking has already been taking place they've been calling him out saying, you know, you're going to die. And what did Hezekiah do? Amazingly, he goes into the temple, shows the letter that the Assyrians gave him to God, prays over it, prays over it. He did not rely on other nations for security, but while surrounded and under constant threat, he simply prayed, humbled himself and prayed. And in 37:33 we read where God said Assyria will not be a threat. You got to have faith to believe that folks because here they are completely surrounding you, taunting you, and and we know it had to be maybe a half million people, at least well over 200,000 were there surrounding this city of Jerusalem. And then we see what happens in verse 36. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, 
came in and wiped out 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. Wiped them out. That's why I say I know at least it has to be probably over 200,000 because what happened? The remaining ones packed up and left. They left. So they did as God foretold. They never even shot an arrow, never laid a siege work at Jerusalem, and they returned to Nineveh. Psalm 46.5 says, Psalm 46.5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That is more powerful, you know, because we know of all the cities in the ancient world, Jerusalem has never moved. It's not in Jerusalem 2.0. It's the same. And why? Because there's a specific reason. When we get to this point in the day of the Lord, what God's going to do? He's going to use two of the mounts in Jerusalem, and he's going to be there, and he's going to split them apart and create that new valley of Jehoshaphat. And that's where judgment will take place. So God wants us to get out of this that he and only he rules the world. Nothing happens without his knowledge. And ultimately, a time will come that he has planned, well, he will bring us into his kingdom. So fifth and finally, we have here chapter 18. God watches the world scheme. He is watching the world scheme. So around 17, around 715 BC, Ethiopia became a major player on the world scene. They were in charge of Egypt. They had captured them. And now they sought to play a role in the world stage. So Ethiopia was sending envoys out to around the world to let them know, hey, if you're having problems with Assyria, let us know. Let us know. So it gives us a picture of that world looking for collective strength. Collective strength. So here we see Isaiah sharing a better message with us on what strength is and security based on what God has showed him with the failed alliance that took place in verses 1 through 3. Isaiah is showing us that security can only be found in the Lord. And we see that in 17.7. And one day in the remnant will enjoy it in 17.6. Man and his plans will come to nothing. We're going to see that in 5 and 6 in chapter 18. And then we see the, one of the best parts God's going to gather this remnant to himself in 18.7. So chapter 18, Ah, land of the whirring, whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, to a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. 
when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus said the Lord to me, for I will quietly look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall, be, they shall all of them be left to the birds of prey on the mountains and to the beasts on earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the river divides, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So we see in verse 1, this land of whirring rings gives us a picture of this busy, restless world. And Ethiopia is a symbolic of this, as this is right now some of the most remote places known on earth. And here they're coming into play to give us a picture. We're getting a picture here of what's going to happen on that day of the Lord when the remote parts of the world come in, like we talked about in earlier books of the Bible, and they've surrounded Jerusalem. So we get that picture. They're coming in uh, for a piece of this action. In verse 2, it gives us a worldwide perspective as we continue to see this seeing the picture of boats over the water going out of the nations. It shows us of, of this collective strength being built, that they're coming together. And tall and smooth relates to the Ethiopians, who were a tall people in the ancient world. But it points to people all across the world, far away. And so verse 3, here we go. All the world is being warned. Um, we have that mention again, like we had, we've read before and gone over, of a signal being raised on that mountain, and then a trumpet being sounded. And Isaiah is saying, world, you better hear it. You're going to see it, you're going to hear it, and then you'll know it'll be too late. You won't be able to react. And with all this going on, going on in the world, the enemies of God think they have everything under control, right? They brought everybody in. Their plans are coming together, but they fail to recognize the full power of God and that he's watching. He's watching. Um, it's a picture, it's a picture of what we saw with like Pharaoh and Moses, right? Pharaoh thought he had full understanding and full power of everything going on, but he didn't. Um, these nations who think they have everything going on are just pawns in the game, much like the mighty Pharaoh. And God says he's watching, and the picture he gives us that is, is as much as you go outside and think this, okay, the sun is shining on me, I'm feeling that, it's, it's a picture of God saying, I'm there. I'm there. 
And in the dew, like in the coolness of a fall day, God's there. He's unobserved by us, but he's watching. He's watching. He's in heaven, but he's also present in this world. And we saw his his presence last week, right? When we went through 16.9, he told us he was not only there, but he was weeping with, weeping with the Moabites. They were receiving judgment for their disobedience, and God was still weeping with them. So it's a picture that we have this present God. Even though we may choose to want to not always remember he's there, he is present. And we see the harvest metaphors in 18, continuing from chapter 17. Um, And we want to make no mistake, besides there being the harvest that God is putting on, because he's also, besides the harvest, he's very much involved in the ripening process also. He is present for all, over all, and in control. And in verses 5 and 6, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's saying, I choose when the harvest will take place. Now the nation's leaders are intended to reap a harvest, but it was taken by God. Could you see the world's generals all coordinated, all linked up by satellite, all preparing for this? They know their people and their weapons are in place. They're ready to enact the plan. They're in a countdown. Before it ever gets there, though, the battle is ended. It's over. And the result, we see here very gently the way Isaiah wrote it. We see death and destruction will be left in massive amounts. So massive that it will feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the field for many, many months. These nations that thought they had all together, that were in full alliance with one another, will suddenly collapse and they will not be there any, any longer. And all that danger is now gone away. Verse 7, when God is moved and that day has come, and there is now peace in the world. At this time, at this time, the nations will come again. The chosen people of the nations, but instead of war, they're bringing tribute. And his people will make their way up that mountain to bring their gifts. The world will come home to be with the Lord on the Mount of Zion, where his name dwells. 718 are are great chapters. It's a great passage continuing in Isaiah. And in really looking and thinking about 177 all week, it's stunning when you sit there and just look at this, instead of just reading by it and just look at it, you gotta realize this is gonna happen sooner than we think. And what I want to get across to you guys is we need to be ready. I want us to look on our maker and it to be a celebration of seeing our Lord and Savior. 
And I don't want it to be looking at someone we just heard about and always want to develop a relationship with, but didn't. So I really want us to do that now. And I want us to realize that we are to do that now. So we need to realize the world is moving, whether we know it or not. God says, hey, as much as you see the sunshine, as much as you see the dew, I'm there present with you. And Isaiah is saying, guys, he's moving us towards that day. Now, most of us, probably all of us, will never see that day in person. But we will, the good thing is we'll be in heaven and have a great view. So I want us to know that when this is happening and realizing that for us, like it tells us here, our eyes need to be fixed on him, knowing that he is going to be enough. He is going to be enough. And going through this, the one thing I got out of it, to do this and to do this effectively, it takes love. And it takes the love that God showed Paul to share with us that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. And I think what you should do too is meditate on that chapter. Because it's so perfect. It's so perfect. You, you see, if you take that kind of love, the definition that Paul gives, and if you read the chapter before and the chapter after, he's saying this is the greatest thing. The greatest gift you get from God is this love. So I want you to really take some time and spin that on. And you're going to see by doing this, you're going to see your attitude completely changing. It will. It will completely change. The more you read, memorize, spend time with other people that have walked in those ways. So don't just read and, and, and go over this and memorize on your own. Spend time with people that have walked in those shoes ahead of you and, and get an idea and either strengthen them or be strengthened by them. And the cool thing is, is God will put that in there. You don't have to say, I will provide strength to them. God will decide as you talk and as you interact who provides that strength. Because the thing is, at some point in your life, everything that you built up man-made wise, you're going to get news or, or you're in, a, in an instant, you're going to see nothing matters. Nothing matters in this world. As much as it bothers me to think that the latest wedge coming out from ping doesn't matter, it doesn't. It does not. Um, as much as, as planning for a retirement, I think matters, it doesn't. What matters is the retirement that we're going to have when we go walking up that hill to go take gifts to Jesus. So what matters is being in this, folks, with other people and truly, truly spending time and making it serious, making it serious. So our interactions are less about social media ranting and our interactions are less about other things of the world and our interactions are on our knees praying for those people that matter. Let's pray.
Jesus, I just want to thank you so much for this year, for what our goals are in praying to you and to knowing you more. And it's no mistake that you have us in this book. We see that clearly. To look at Isaiah and constantly be reminded about this city, Jerusalem, that's your city, and to see the interactions with the nations around them and to see how they lacked an understanding, a clear understanding of you. Father, may we not just read this, but may we read this and understand it so we can become effective warriors for you and be filled with the Holy Spirit and move others by prayer and by seeking you that we can see people that we come before you like that persistent widow like that child asking his father for a gift that we constantly come before you about those in our lives that we want to see changed so father may we realize that's only going to happen through time in your word and time in study and time with others and that we are constantly reaching out in prayer. That our, our gaze is fixed on you, like 17.7. And you are our maker, our deep, precious maker, that not only created the world, not only created a people, but chose other people. And Jesus came and made a way for us. May we never forget that. And it's so easy in this day and age. But Father, just help us to keep our focus on you. Amen.